Holly McNamara is a registered professional civil engineer with a bachelor's degree from Cornell University and a master's degree from UC San Diego in structural engineering. She has more than two decades of experience in project management, engineering design, and due diligence. In addition to her career, she has experience forming and working with 501c3 nonprofits, as well as event planning and fundraising for many different groups. In 2010, Holly had the opportunity to work alongside the late CEO of Zappos.com, Tony Shea, to launch his best-selling book, Delivering Happiness, A Path to Profits, Passion, and Purpose. The book launch consisted of a two-month media push that required traveling and coordinating approximately 150 interviews and speaking engagements across the country. The book remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 27 weeks. Holly was born and raised in Somerset, Massachusetts. She left for grad school out west in 1999, and after 14 years away, decided to move back to her hometown to be close to her family. She then served on the Somerset Board of Selectmen from 2016 through 2021, and has been proud to be able to serve and to give back to the community that raised her. During our chat, we talked about Holly's decade-long friendship with Tony Shea, her time as his colleague at Zappos, and his tragic death in November of 2021. We discussed at length the recently published book, Wonder Boy, Tony Shea, Zappos, and the Myth of Happiness in Silicon Valley, by Angel Al Young and David Jeans. Holly was interviewed by the authors for over 40 hours for this publication. I hope you enjoy this very special episode. All right, we are here at True 30. Thank you, Holly McNamara, for joining me on the show this morning. Thanks for having me. So let me first start by saying I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, I know you love Tony you. and he loved you. And a big part of our mission today is to talk about the kindness of Tony's heart, much of which gets lost in most of the articles that I've read, specifically since his death. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories now being bantied about in the press. And as a book that you were a big part of, specifically on the journalistic front, for those on YouTube, this is the book. It's called Wonder Boy. Tony Shea, Zappos, and the Myth of Happiness in Silicon Valley. And the authors are Angela Young and David Jeans. And as we talked about off camera briefly, what I liked about this book was I didn't think these journalists had an agenda. Uh, they seemed just to be curious about this wonderful young man who kind of spun into uh, a sad demise. And the book does get chronicled in there. And so I think it's a good place to start with who you are and why we're talking today. So <laughs> chapter eight of this best-selling book, Tony Shea Zappos, um, it starts off with Tony riding around on a scooter, trying his best to avoid the dozen or so people milling about his mansion in the Southern Highlands neighborhood of Las Vegas. Papers were scattered across the floor and counters, like in crazed academic offices. He looked up as a woman named Holly McNamara, blonde with the affect of someone who was quick to laugh, ambled into the kitchen was her birthday, and she had plans to go out to dinner with Tony and some friends. She watched with bewilderment as he zoomed past. Where are you going, she asked, and who are all these people? And so that was my introduction, and it was funny because I reached out to you before I read the book because I knew you were mentioned in it, but I had no idea. You weren't just mentioned in it. You were a big piece of Tony's life, and bigger than that, you spent how many hours? 40 hours being interviewed by the authors for this book? I, I would even venture to say, first, I want to say I agree with you. They did not have an agenda. Um, having been in politics for a long time, I had a very good kind of grasp on who I thought I could trust. I mean, you never know completely, but when they reached out to me, I was really impressed 
and I had been reached out to by several journalists and I just stuck with, with Angel, really. It was just Angel was my contact. And um, I talked to her. Our first phone conversation, when I ultimately decided to call her back, was four hours. And Four hours. Wow. Okay. And that was in, that was right after Tony passed. Um, and we spoke, at, sometimes it was daily, um, and then it, it slowed down a bit, but there were random times where I would text her in the middle of the night because I thought of something or um, wanted to remember to tell her something or found an old email that I forwarded to her. I, I sent her a lot of stuff. So they did such a great job with the book. And then what you just, the excerpt that you read from that chapter eight is they did such a great job describing it. It's very vivid in my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and they described it really well. Yeah, they did. So. And, and I know that that was part of other journalists that I read who wrote pieces on, and you were mentioned numerous times, not just within this book, but you were obviously a very close confidant to Tony, one of which who opted out of his orbit uh, pretty early on, which we'll get into. Um, And then as you know, and then some of my listeners may remember, I was the executive producer and and executive producer of a documentary called The Naked Brand, uh, which when I was a partner in an ad agency called Questus, and we launched that film in 2012. And our film studied and chronicled the advent of social technology and its effect on brand communication with customers. And our research and interviews focused on CEOs that were doing it differently. And in that, we interviewed journalists and academics and researchers and corporate executives. And Tony was a prime example of our whole thesis, which was why we chose to spend so much time with him. And so we took our film crew to the Zappos headquarters in 2011, I think it was. And it was a... You've been there, obviously, but it was a very happy, jovial, just wonderful place to be. And we couldn't help but notice in the lobby, there was a stop sign, big, like yellow size stop sign that had a person, like had a head in the middle, and then it had arms that wrapped around, which was someone hugging this person. And we were all just like, okay, this is the first context clue. This is not an average corporate facility. It's not normal. <laughs> no. And it was an iconography that really, I think, captured the entirety of Tony Shea's mission, which was to deliver happiness, which was one of his first books, which you actually were on the road show to talk about. And he wanted people to feel less alone, make a place for the misfits, as he said, the nerds, his fellow introverts. And he did just that. So I think that in the beginning of the book, uh, for those that did not read it, it it really talks about Tony's upbringing and his, his Chinese upbringing, strict, loving, disciplined parents. He attended the Branson School in Ross, which is a very prestigious uh, and expensive school in Marin County. Yep. And his geometry teacher at Branson says, I don't often use the word brilliant, but Tony was brilliant. And he then went to Harvard to please his parents because he did get accepted to Brown as well. And he wanted to go to Brown and study advertising, which is also telling. And even in your notes, because we've exchanged notes um, over the last couple of weeks. And I think that this is kind of where we can start out with the Tony kindness theme, uh, because that's what you and I agreed on when we first started talking and emailing back and forth, is that I don't know if anyone has captured the kindness of this young man's heart. And that's obviously our goal here to be completely forthright. So after spending, I think it was a semester at Harvard, he hung out with a group of friends that he talked about, 15 of us, and he found out, and they didn't drink much. It was just 15, as he said, yep. nerds that loved each other, hung out, made people feel welcome, and he never felt 
like he missed home. And so he wrote this note at the end of the semester over the Christmas break to his new friends. He said, a little over three months ago, we hadn't even met. Call it luck, call it fate. Whatever brought us together, I feel lucky to have you all as such good friends. Quite simply, you guys light up my life. Without you guys, I wouldn't be anywhere near as happy with college as I am now, although my grades would probably be a bit better. Because of you guys, I haven't even really felt homesick yet. Amazing what 90 days can do, huh? In any case, I just wanted to say thanks to all of you. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and all that jazz. Oh, and one last thing. I hope that each of you invites me to your wedding because I want to be there when the people dearest to me are having one of the happiest days of our lives. All right, enough of the sentiment stuff. On with the presents, Tony. And when you, know you read that, how did that, yeah, how did that make you feel? Oh, go ahead. No, so I read that letter and knowing Tony, so I met Tony in 2004 um, when I was, my engineering job took me to Las Vegas very frequently. And when, but when I read that, read that letter about Tony, um, I feel like that, that was the most that he was, that he's ever emoted. <laughs> um, yeah. He wasn't a very expressive, um, emotional outright uh, because he's an introvert. So he didn't express his feelings a lot. In fact, it was actually hard for him, I think, to express his feelings. So reading that was really a nice um, kind of reminder of how kind he was. And um, a lot of people had the wrong impression, I think. And I, um, after his passing, I think that's also why the media has such a hard time grasping or at least focusing on the kindness of his heart. They go straight to the tragedy mm-hmm. and that's the end of the story. Oh, that leads. Um, <laughs> if it bleeds, it leads, right? We know that. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, and his father and I talk about it a lot, you know, it's his life, you know, 46 years young, um, for 45 or 44 of those years, they were wonderful and there were hardships, absolutely hardships, but, um, it was really the last year and a half to two years that were clearly detrimental. Um, and so I'm really glad that you're doing this because I think it's so important to, to highlight those prior years. Um, you know, how did he get to be where he, he was and how did it unfold? And another thing I found really interesting is reading the book, you're summarizing someone's life in one fell swoop. Um, and it's, it's, they did such a tremendous job. I think there's obviously so much more we could we could write many books and fill in the 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 minutia and the details, but they really captured I think the essence of Tony and um, the essence of people around him, including me. Um, and when I met him in 2004, no one knew what Zappos was. He he showed me the office. He said, "Oh, I'm going to show you our new office." He had just moved to Henderson and it was completely empty. They had a few people working at the time. Um, and of course it was after hours, so it was mostly mm-hmm. empty anyway, but, um, he said, Oh, my plan is in several years is to fill this with a couple of thousand employees. And that's what he did. He really <laughs> you know, did. At it's... the time I thought it was crazy. <laughs> well, no, and I think that's a great point. So Speaking a little bit for our listeners that don't know who Tony Shea is, I'll just fill that in a little bit for us for this discussion. So before Zappos, Tony found his success with a company called Link Exchange, which was his first company out of school with a couple of Harvard buddies, uh, Sanjay Madden and Ali Patrovi, Partovi, 
And they built websites for local businesses, to be quick. Link Exchange then was the hub for all of his friends to be in one place. So as we talked about off camera, this was kind of the first piece. Like, how can I recreate my Harvard dorm? Right? Yes. It was, he's like, I just want to be with these same people with the same mindset that we can change the world. We can do good things. And he did. And he had this whole work ethic of work hard, play hard and succeed. This was the theme to his life. And again, we agreed that this was his first attempt to recreate that, that love of his dorms. From that, uh, to just cut to the chase, after a couple of years of maneuvering and there's a lot of technical things that went on with Link Exchange, specific to Tony's acumen. Uh, very brilliant man. Uh, I, I don't want to share too many stories about how he got it off the ground, but he sold the company to Microsoft in 1998 for $265 million. And there were about 100 employees at the time. And when he shared the story, he talked about why he sold it. And he said, the reason he gave for selling was that the energy, the passion, and the fun was gone. It was more like death by a thousand paper cuts or like the Chinese water torture, he wrote. Drop by drop, day by day, any single drop or bad hire was bearable and not that big of a deal. But the, in the aggregate, it was torture. After he sold the company, he said, I didn't realize at the time, but it was a turning point in my life. I had decided to stop chasing the money and start chasing the passion. And then that's kind of where he felt like, well, what am I going to do now? And as you read in the book, he said, I felt a sense of melancholy. What's next? What is happiness? What am I working towards? And that was his origin story to get this thing off the ground. And that's when he started Zappos, right? So it was one of those things where he, it was funny because I didn't know this, that Zappos was started by someone else and yeah. it was called Shoe Sight. And he then out recruited a guy named Nick Swinneman, who was um, at a, is an internet startup selling shoes online. <laughs> and so he yeah. actually, he became the eventual, um, and then he, they went out and find a guy named Fred Mosier, who was a former Nordstrom sales guy in shoes. And he would become the eventual president of the company, which was pretty amazing. And so Tony went through a whole bunch of machinations there as well. Um, to be brief with the customer or to my listeners here, um, it got pretty hairy. And he sold a bunch of properties that he owned to get the company off the ground and went all in and became the CEO. And uh, I think it was 2001. And he poured another $6 million of his own money into it. And in 2000, he grew sales from 1.6 million to 8.6 million by the end of 2002. And then again, they, get, they got strapped for cash. He sold another apartment <laughs> to keep it going, which got them going for another six months. And then by the end of 2002, they had quadrupled revenue once again to $32 million. And from there, it was kind of off to the races, right? We all know yep. the history now. Um, but how much did Tony talk about this during your, you know, decades-long friendship? What did that look like? Did he ever share with you this, the, the trials and tribulations of getting this thing off the ground? Or did he, he just never? Kind of, no. No, he never. Okay. I, you know... Um, before I knew he was even writing a book, before I even considered moving to Las Vegas from San Diego um, and quitting my engineering job, I I was friends with Tony for a good, you know, six years before that took place. And we were social. We were we had mutual friends as well and close, very close friends. We came very close, but I never really knew anything about Zappos other than what I read um, that he shared at one point I was on their email list. So I got some of the emails that 
the company was getting um, and updates and things like that before social media was big. And um, so it was just, it was cool. You know, at the time I thought, oh, my friend's really successful. That's great. I didn't know anything about Link Exchange. Um, I, all I knew was that Tony played poker with my college friends <laughs> and that's how we met. I knew he loved poker. I knew he had just moved his company to Las Vegas, but I thought it was crazy that he was going to fill that empty office um, with a couple of thousand employees. Like, like who sells shoes online? Like, that's just not normal. <laughs> and I, mean, I thought the same thing. <laughs> I, did, yeah. I was like, I remember back in the day because he lived, his apartment was right over here on Van Ness. I live in San Francisco. And yep. uh, on Venice, he bought a couple, he bought five or six apartments at the top of the AMC theater. We're really cool apartments, high ceilings, all that. And it was just a big party central. Uh, and I remember reading articles about him in the early aughts because I was at an agency, an ad agency at the time. And we were poo-pooing the idea of buying shoes yeah. online. We're like, who's going to buy shoes online? And it was really around logistics. Because like, yeah, if you don't like them, then what do you do? Right. You, you right. send them back. And if you send them back at the time, it, we didn't have free shipping and delivery in, you know, the early odds. This was a, you had to look at the cost infrastructure and the logistics involved in that. And I think that that was where Tony was way ahead of the game, specific to that knowledge, just knowing. And you said he didn't, you didn't really understand the delivering happiness piece of him until you went on his book tour. Correct. I right? mean, I, when I walked into, you know, what they described in that, that first, that chapter eight, um, I was just going there to celebrate, I think it was my 32nd birthday. And it was not a big birthday. It was just like, you know what? I haven't seen Tony in a while. Um, I had switched jobs. So my engineering job wasn't taking me to Las Vegas. And so I'm going to go see him. Um, and my friend Nolan is our mutual friend. He was going to fly down for the birthday. And, and Tony said, sure, come on down. Didn't mention writing a book, nothing. Didn't say, oh, I'm too busy. Nothing. So it was like a random Wednesday that I drove up um, after work. And actually, you know, it was, it was earlier than after work. But anyway, I got there. And like the book says, I, I walked in, like had my bag. I had just driven all the way from San Diego by myself. And I see these papers in piles everywhere and all these people and Tony on a scooter. <laughs> So I'm like, what the heck's going on? Who are these people? And he's on the scooter. And it's exactly how the book describes. He's on the scooter. And he's like, I'm writing a book. I'm like, what are you talking about? And you're on a scooter. Like, what are you doing? You're in your kitchen. Like, what are these? Is that your book? He's like, oh, that's my book. It's on the floor. I'm like, why is it on the floor? <laughs> so he was editing it. He was, they were at the last final stretch and putting the chapters in piles. Um, his editor, Will, was there. Will Schwab. Um, I don't think he's mentioned in the book. I'm not sure, but um, I didn't see him being mentioned. So when Jen Lim was there and that's when I first met Jen, but they had already known each other for quite some time. So he, he hadn't even told me about Jen yet. Um, who's, who is Jen? Just for edification here. So Jen Lim had a software consulting job, um, I guess in San Francisco. And she and Tony ultimately um, before... Uh, it was, I think it was right after the acquisition, they just decided to hike Mount Kilimanjaro. And they mentioned this okay. in the book as well. Yeah. And that was like a true bonding experience for them. Um, and they became really close. She ended up quitting her job and going all in on the book with Tony. Um, she 
ultimately, Tony had a very unorthodox, um, what we now know as polyamory. Um, at the time, no one really knew what the heck he was doing, but right. he had multiple girlfriends. Um, Jen was one of them. Um, and she, but she also, she had a girlfriend as well. So it was a very interesting dynamic. Um, but they were open about it. Um, and, but she was there and she, she actually worked with Tony and with Zappos on uh, helping to put together the culture book, which um, they mentioned that in the book as well. I don't know mm-hmm. if you recall, but the culture book is a, a compilation of um, kind of feedback from the employees to say, you know, I love it here or I don't. Well, this is what I love. This is what I don't like. I mean, I don't know if anyone really said that they didn't like it, but um, <laughs> it was a great kind of almost encyclopedia uh, of, you know, the great things about Zappos. And so Jen was, Jen was tasked with um, coordinating that book for a few years. Um, and then again, jumped in to manage the Delivering Happiness LLC. So Tony had to start an actual LLC um, since technically Zappos is owned by Amazon at the point, that point, because you couldn't, you know, ethically run the book through the company, the book launch. And so Jen um, is the CEO of Happiness. <laughs> that was the title Tony gave her. Yes. Um, and so she pretty much orchestrated the tour and the launch and just helped Tony with, with everything. And, and I came in um, kind of serendipitously. Um, there's a video of it. I, I need to pull that up at some point. But <laughs> we did a, a, these video happy hours and Tony was describing in the video saying like, Holly took a leap of faith. You know, at the time I wanted to leave my engineering job and do something different for a short period of time. I wanted to launch something that was a hobby of mine doing like concierge, um, a concierge type service in Las Vegas. It's something I'd been doing as a hobby for seven years. And Tony wanted to help me get off the ground. And he, he saw the synergy and, and thought and interviewed me without me knowing it. And it turns out for reading the book, the question he started, the first question he asked me is the question he asked a lot of people that I learned he was interviewing. It is, if you had, if you could do something for the rest of your life, what would it be? And so my answer to that was, well, somehow one way or another, I want to live on an airplane and be able to be mobile and fly anywhere to see my friends. (laughs) It was very, (laughs) it was a crazy answer, but that's like, you know, in a pipe dream, that's what I would want. And, you know, I guess clearly he saw the, the fit there. So that was when he proposed to me and said, look, I need a lot of help. Um, you know, he had already introduced me to Jen. He said, she's helping me write the book. Mimi, his assistant, his personal, personal assistant at the time, who I became friendly with through our, my friendship with Tony. Um, she was never around anymore. I didn't really know what that meant. That was Mimi fam, right? Mimi fam. Her yeah. real name is Jennifer. Um, okay. Nickname is Mimi. Okay. Um, so, and his actual assistant at Zappos, Elizabeth Gregerson, she's incredible. She was having a baby. So he's like, I need to launch this book. I need someone that I trust. Can you please come in? And so that's how he brought me in. That's how it starts. Uh, so let me backfill for the listeners a little bit. We, cause we don't need to get too into it, but the success of Zappos was so amazing that Amazon did come in and pay a billion dollars for it. Yes. So they were like, we think we can, we, we need to own this and you can run it, which was 
they really did not want to run it because they saw right. this culture as something completely unique. And it was the egalitarianism that kind of, I think, was the fulcrum to everything that Tony touched. And the Zappa core values is exactly why we, as an ad agency, went and filmed. And he had the 10 agent, you know, the 10 tenants, and he had some of which are create fun and a little weirdness, build a positive team and a family spirit, be adventurous, creative, open-minded, be humble, deliver wow through services. And even in our film, we actually recorded and talked to the young man, but they had no limits on how long you could talk to the customers. Yes, so correct. The, lo the longest customer service call was 10 and a half hours. Yes. <laughs> so I don't exactly know what they talked about for 10 and a half hours, but you know that was something where Tony wanted to reinvent happiness, not just with the employees, but the customer. So if a yes. customer calls in and says, I got this dress, and we listen to a lot of these calls, you know, just through osmosis, but they were engaging in conversations like you and I would have, right? We just, I'd be, yep. hey, Holly, what's going on? Oh, good. How are you today? I'm fine. And what shoes? Why did you buy these new shoes? Oh, my daughter's going to, you know, her first prom. And I mean, these were like engagements. And so as opposed to like software that measures okay. efficacy of customer service centers, historically, get them off the phone. It's expensive. Get them off the yep. phone you know, put them onto some kind of web platform where they can then deal with their stuff because it costs us nothing. Tony was the opposite. He's like, no, man, let's just embrace everyone. Let's have fun. Let's yeah. be weird. And, you know, that was, you know, and then he also made Zappos among the best places to work by numerous different awards. 100% of its employees had health benefits and they invested in professional development courses for everyone. And it was just one of those things here too, where I'm a big fan of Dr. Height, Dr. Jonathan Height. And my listeners are sick of me talking about him, but this book <laughs> I haven't <laughs> talked about um, as much. Jonathan Haidt wrote a book um, called Finding Mod The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom. And this was a piece where Tony was directly quoted in the book. And it said, I don't, this is Jonathan Haidt writing. I don't believe there is an inspiring answer to the question, what is the purpose of life? Yet by drawing an ancient wisdom and modern science, we can find compelling answers to the questions of purpose within life. The final version of happiness hypothesis is that happiness comes from between. Happiness is not something you can find, acquire, or achieve directly. You have to get the conditions right and then wait. Some of those conditions are within you, such as coherence among the parts and levels of your personality. Other conditions require relationships to things beyond you. Just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work and a connection to something larger. It is worth striving to get the right relationships between yourselves and others, between yourselves and your work, and between yourselves and something larger than yourself. If you get these relationships right, a sense of purpose and meaning will emerge. And that was a, and again, another major ethos around the shop. And I think that what we, what we captured on camera, again, we were only there for two or three days, there wasn't anyone at Zappos that wasn't having fun. I mean, there were people in costumes and there was people in party hats and anyone who had a birthday got cake and sung to and everyone yelled and screamed. They had a guy that gave out free hugs. He was, I think he was yep. the mayor of hugs. I can't remember his name now, but it was just, <laughs> it was so amazing to watch. And Tony was a voracious reader on these types of ideology, specifically, how can you make things change? Um, 
Ben Shahar was another author that he followed that said, um, how can we help ourselves and others and individuals and communities and society become happier? That was his edict as an uh, author and a Harvard professor who he loved. And, and it was one of those things in here that during our notes together, um, this professor at Harvard had a question that he offered up to his students is if we are so rich as a culture, why are we all so unhappy? And Tony really clung to that. He was like, yeah, because he obviously had money. And so it wasn't mm -hmm. money. Once you have money, you realize like, okay, it helps. I'm free to do the things I want to do, but now I still have to deal with all these things. Sometimes right. they're demons. And, you know, in here, I wrote in my notes to you, is, the, is there a sentence that best describes one of Tony's demons? Is it to do with money? And you said, no. I think it, I think that Tony was unhappy throughout most of his life. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because it was speci specifically your notes here. So I don't think that Tony was unhappy throughout most of his life. I think he simply enjoyed building companies, solving problems and helping people. Yes. Yeah. And so I think it's easy for the media to look at the situation and say, oh, he he was on a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. He had mental health problems. Um, he was unhappy. He was constantly on a quest for happiness. I, I don't see it that way at all. Um, it's kind of, and it's not even a chicken and egg thing, like which came first. Um, I truly think Tony was a genuinely happy person. Um, he loved his friends. He loved seeing other people happy. He, of course, like we said earlier, was an introvert. Everybody knows that. Um, but he, he would push himself constantly out of his comfort zone. And one of those things was speaking engagements. Um, he knew it was something he had to do for the company and he pushed himself to do it. Um, so instead of, I think instead of saying he was searching for happiness, um, I think he was just trying to, to do what he loved. And that, that was, like I said, seeing people happy and building companies. Um, and, you know, as you described earlier, he wasn't the founder of Zappos. He was the CEO. He became the CEO. He was initially the investor. Um, he craved it. He loved it. Um, and you can see in the book where he's, it's, he's like, I have to go all in because I miss this. I want to go back into solving these problems. I want to do more. And he, he lived, he thrived off of that. And so he was, to me, I never saw, I never thought Tony was searching for happiness. Um, and so it, it's hard for me to read that in the articles because it, they're constantly saying, oh, he was searching and he got into drugs because he was searching. And that's just not, um, I don't think how it, it happened. <laughs> well, no, so that's good think, to hear from a close friend. Cause I mean, to your point, the, the, I've read a lot about Tony specifically, even for this discussion. And then we did a lot of homework on him, you know, as an ad agency to understand who he was. And, and I didn't see that either. What I did see, uh, upfront close is that when we were presenting our documentary to his team, he was on stage standing next to me and holding a microphone and his, his hand was shaking. Very <laughs> yeah. nervous. I mean, he was terrified. He did, unlike me, I'm up there. It's like, oh, everyone look at me. I like the camera. I want people to stare at me. I love attention. And he was just, you know, and he, and he captured the audience. There was about 600 people in the audience and they loved yes. him. And it was just like, he was this kind generous highly intelligent spirit i mean he was he so smart comedy he studied yeah. comedy because he wanted to to make people happy he wanted to make them laugh yeah. when he spoke 
And he did. He made people laugh. I remember the first time I saw him spoke when I first started working with him, I cried. I was like, this is so meaningful to me. And I know to all these other people, but it really all came together for me. I was like, here he is. He's helping me launch my heart by him. I'm like, how did I get here? <laughs> and yeah. just how, how did I get here? And it happened to Google too. I mean, the room was standing room only. There are probably 400 people crammed in this room and I'm holding the timer. I'm like, how the heck did I get here? And so, but that's how Tony made people feel. I don't think he realized ever. Um, he did to a point, but he really didn't realize what that felt like. And it was such a wonderful gift that he gave people. I and mean, he, I was on the highs, uh, highest of highs, um, you know, sitting there holding the timer for him. But he's up there humble, sometimes in a t-shirt. Yeah. Just giving his talk and being himself. And, but to go back to the original point about finding happiness, um, I think ultimately what happened was, was that Tony, and I described this to you in my notes, is that Tony um, wanted his friends to be happy. He was giving these gifts to his friends, helping his friends, helping me, helping others. But there are so many people that aren't, they, they're not genuine and they take advantage of that. Um, and Tony, you know, just wanted to be himself and wanted to be a normal guy living his normal life, which we know it wasn't normal, but he just wanted to live his life and people were taking advantage of him and he just wasn't realizing it at first. Um, no, you talk I, about that here in this paragraph. It says that um, Tony ultimately concluded that happiness was about four things. And this is what you did comment on because perceived control was necessary. Perceived progress was necessary. Connectedness to others and then being part of something bigger. And you mm -hmm. write about that specifically with not only with Zappos uh, after the purchase, but everything he touched after that. So like the downtown project, which you mentioned you weren't part of, but why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because that was a massive undertaking. Uh, yeah. It was covered, covered in the story and song of our culture uh, up to present day. So right. pretty big project. So Tony wanted me to be involved. Um, he he gave me an opportunity to be um, a construction manager manager for some of their projects. So it's kind of like going back to my original roots. Um, yes. And when it came time to sign the contract, and this is what you mentioned at the beginning, is that I opted out of his <laughs> orbit. Um, yeah. This is what I opted out of. And he, the lawyer at Zappos, that was, you know, we were redlining the contract. and. They wanted me, and it's just me. I don't. I didn't have my own company at the time. Um, they wanted me to sign an indemnification clause, and I'm like, "You want me to indemnify Zappos? Like, I can't afford that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm not doing that." But long story short, I walked away, and I told Tony, "I said, you know, I can't, can't do it. I can't sign this. Um, I love it. You know, I love the fact that you want me to help. Thank you, but I can't do it." But the downtown project. Um, I was able to see it get off the ground. And one of the first meetings was at Tony's house. There were about 40 people in his living room, very casual, just spitballing ideas. Um, I have some video of that too. Um, spitballing ideas. We had like a, a kind of a, a group effort where we all came up with different ideas of what we would envision um, in the community. And it, it was just... It, it's crazy looking back 
and realizing what that was the start of. Like at the time, it was the end of the book tour. I was completely burnt out. I was not in a good place. I didn't really trust anyone. Um, And so I went through the exercise and I enjoyed being around the people that were in his living room. But I wasn't really grasping like the, the magnitude of what was happening. Do you want to talk about that? Because that our listeners have no idea what that is. The, the downtown project was not <laughs> a small, unambitious project. It was Massive. grandiose. Yeah, it was almost untenable in its in its ideation. Why don't you yes. just explain a little bit what that macro concept was? Okay, so I think it's important to preface this with, I think you're right. And I think that Tony was trying to, in a much larger scale, recreate his college dorm. Mm-hmm. and recreate yeah. having his friends around him all the time and having that social network and that environment um, in, in life. Like this, he wanted Agreed. to build that again. And so Agreed. he invested $350 million into the downtown project. Um, and it was basically, so Zappos had decided to move their headquarters to the old city hall building. Mm-hmm. Um, Mayor Goodman um, at the time, loved Tony. And <laughs> yeah, most, for obvious reasons. You know, for obvious reasons, yeah. yeah. So they moved their, you know, 1,200 employees down to the old downtown um, in Las Vegas, which was very run down. Um, and, you know, your listeners may know or they may not, but Fremont Street, it, it's just ridden with crime and um, it's just not a place where you go when you go to Vegas, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Tony was moving his company to the old city hall and wanted to bring life back to that area. And he wanted to bring startups and businesses and restaurants and bars. And, and that's what he did. I mean, he, Mm -hmm. he spent all his money doing it. Um, it was a lot harder than, (laughs) than, um, people learned it was a lot harder than expected, but you know, Tony, that he, he gave it his all. And, but there was a lot of tragedy around it as well. Um, people, entrepreneurs not only suffer from high levels of stress, depression, um, things like that, but this type of environment was so fast paced and so extremely entrepreneurial that you know, there were suicides. There were three different suicides. Um, right. And Tony had a very hard time. And I wasn't there for this, but I know that Tony, when I was around, Tony had a very hard time with conflict. And so he had a very hard time um, talking about sad things, negative things. Um, He wanted, like I said before, he wanted everyone to be happy around him and find ways to make, he was a people pleaser, wanted them to be happy. But the downtown project was so intense um, and they started losing money. And the reality was it, it was going south and um and i'm not trying to diminish what he's done there because his effects on downtown las vegas are everlasting um but at the time he and, and i'm gonna be careful about how i word this um because tony took offense to the media saying that he stepped down from the downtown project but in my opinion he stepped down um whether he wanted to admit that or not, he did. And David Gold, who was a professor that Tony had brought in from the book tour that we met on the book tour, who was near and dear to me, I love him. Um, one of the most amazing people. 
he had he was spending most of his time in Las Vegas, but still had his home in Iowa. And, you know, luckily he still had his home in Iowa, <laughs> mm -hmm. but he he wrote an open letter to David and, you know, you can find this if you Google it, David Gold, G-O-U-L-D, and basically said to Tony, where is our North Star? You're our North Star. You can't leave us. Um, you're our leader. Why? Like, what? why are you walking away? This is your brainchild and we're here for you. Mm -hmm. And And he was right. And I would, if Tony was still alive, I would be saying this to his face. Um, which is the the problem is that most people in Tony's orbit, which led to his demise, are yes men. Like they won't tell him no. They won't tell him what's wrong because they don't want to be uncomfortable and they know he'll be uncomfortable. But it was so hard um, for me on like the smaller scale to see. It was a much smaller scale than it ended up being for me. But like he people around him, they're finally now speaking up and saying, no, oh, Tony shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. Well, where were you when things were hard? You were just pretending everything was fine. You were enabling, you're part of the problem. And so um, that downtown project, I think that's what happened. I mean, there were so many people around him that just did whatever he said and were, well, and in, in their defense, um, you know, Tony again, gives people these opportunities and they're on the highest of high, like, wow, I'm part of something bigger than myself. Like, this is what people strive for. This is what Tony says makes people happy and it's making me happy and I'm contributing to this community and I'm, I'm, um, you know, contributing to something that's going to better my community and better the world around me. Um, but when things, when the reality hit, it, it hit really hard for Tony. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, the project itself was 45 acres in yeah. total. And it was, to your point, $350 million of investment. But it was not only investing in entrepreneurs, restaurants, bars. They had a music festival that he launched yes. to kind of get into, to recapture Burning Man type thing and concerts that he loved. Because part of what we have yet to discuss was that he loved dancing. He loved going to raves. He loved being... uh I don't know, enveloped in music. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the pulse and the bumping and he started experimenting at that point with Molly, MDMA, and mm -hmm. other drugs that kind of opened little doors in his brain. You know, for those of us who've done drugs, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I can tell you it does open doors, right? It's it does. Pretty, it's pretty cool <laughs> to, to be in a yep. club when you're rolling. And, and uh, you know, that was a big piece of what he was attempting to do. And we actually had this in our notes together, but Nellie Bowles, uh, who's a journalist I follow for years, and I didn't realize until I read this, but she was at the time at Recode, and she spent three weeks living downtown in the downtown project in the summer of 2014. And in September of that year, she published the first installment of a planned series of stories framed as Downtown Vegas is the Great American Utopia. And this was the because this was, we just got done with our documentary and we just got done with our fascination with Tony. So I remember this specifically. And I remember reading about this and I was like, oh, good for him. He's doing what everyone said was impossible. It's typical of Tony. You know, he just, he has no boundaries. He can do whatever he wants. And in the piece, she wrote this. There's an excitement to being in a startup city devoted to startups, a sense of camaraderie. When she asked Tony to explain the phenomenon, he described downtown Vegas as, 
Ted meets South by Southwest meets Burning Man, but as a lifestyle rather than events. And we can scale this to multiple cities. So he wasn't even finished, you know, with this investment in Vegas. No. He was like, once we Not do this, we'll, we'll templatize this and we'll take it to other cities that need this love, this level of love. But as you mentioned, there were some cracks in this utopian facade. And Nelly continued to report on this. And out of the 100 people employed to work on the downtown project, 30 were laid off. And this is when he did step down because I, I've done enough homework on him to realize that he did. Bigger than that, as you know, it was one of his dear friends. He didn't like confrontation to begin with. So once things it. started to go sideways, he's like, fuck this. <laughs> I'm, I'm not out. dealing with it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to go run Zappos. It's easy. You know, this is brutal. <laughs> so they laid off 30 out of the 100. And, and then there was a growing list of detractors, one of which was a columnist named John Smith. And this is, you know, we oh, we, yeah. we agreed on this because John was not pulling punches in his article. Brutal. He said, Shay's true believers who bought into his rhetoric like kids waiting in line to sit on Santa's lap. If losing 30 workers spells the beginning of the end of Shay's downtown Dalai Lama routine, that's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, as journalists often do, you know, they use their wit and prose as a knife or a sword. And they, he just cut Tony off right there, just livid. And, and, and you said, you know, it's, it's hard to, maybe he didn't have to put that much venom in that story, but he wasn't, didn't. right? He didn't need to be, pardon my <laughs> language, such a dick, Yeah, <laughs> but he, um, he's not wrong. Correct. I'll say and, that. That's yeah, that's it. And, you know, Tony's response was changing the city is hard, but so is changing the world. We will all be remembered by the impact we have on the future, not the people we piss off today. <laughs> that was Tony's Which response. Is, it's a great response. But yeah. I, what I didn't like, I I read in the book and I can't quote it exactly, but the that Tony's another response Tony had to that was. And I don't know if it was in that interview or I think it was a different one. He said that those 30 people were were let go because they wanted the downtown project to fail. And that makes me mad. Um, I don't know those people. I don't know who they were. I may have known them. I don't even know who they were at the time, but but I don't I don't like that. And that's Tony not taking responsibility for something. Um yeah. you know, and again, I don't want to get negative here, but um, but that's him not having that self-awareness. And it comes from a good place because he just wants everything to be positive. Um, but that really bothered me because of a couple of reasons. One, for me, when I tried to bring things up to him that were problems, he didn't want anything to do with it, but kind of twisted it in a way that, well, I was creating a problem by bringing him the problems. Right. Um, two, the other thing that I noticed in the book was that, um, is it Ovik that committed suicide? Yeah. The Real unique name. Young and, yeah. Yeah. Um, he had done something very similar and I empathized with him because he had also brought to Tony, Hey, there are these three major problems. I, I'm, he was on the highest of highs because look, I'm here, I'm fresh out of school and I'm really excited to be part of something bigger than myself. Same feeling, yeah. same yeah. exact feeling. And But Tony dismissed him and his concerns because they were negative. And, and Tony answered his concerns, but it was a dismissive answer, in my opinion. And it was very similar to the answer 
or the non-answer that I had received when I brought up concerns. But Ovik was so devastated, which I understand because I was also devastated at the time. I wasn't suicidal. He became suicidal. Yep. Um, and that was a huge problem. Um, and that, but that was part of why it was so easy for people to take advantage of Tony. Um, and because they knew exactly what to say, they knew what he wanted to hear. Um, and they just went along for the ride. They did. And, and to your point there with John Smith, the author or the journalist who wrote that skating piece, he was accurate in his assessment of that, specifically that Tony, and this is a thread throughout the book, is that Tony did not like confrontation. He also trusted people more and more as time went on that were not qualified. Right. Part of the reason the downtown project didn't work was people of your ilk, Ivy League educated engineers who actually understand the width and breadth, right? The warp and woof of something this big. Denied it based on yeah. an indemnification agreement, which by the way, we laughed about this off camera, but like, <laughs> seriously, you, you want me to indemnify against Amazon? I mean, like, I don't even know what to do with that. Specifically, the, the just the myriad liabilities that come into a project of this size, right? It was like, yes. you, you understood based on your specific education. Right. This is not, this is not something I can do by no. myself. And, and no. even if I did decide to, to run this as your project manager, I need about 500 people. This is not like, you know, we can do this with a hundred of your friends that you went rolling in Burning Man with. I mean, this is, this is not, this is not how we do it. Right. And, and that was the thing that, you know, it starts to, the, the book starts to talk to things like the holacracy piece and, and which we'll get into in a sec, but this is then where the trailer park. <laughs> so we can just understand that the Downpod project did not go as envisioned, but Tony sent a message to his closest friends and confidants that we're going to be living together <laughs> in an experiment for two weeks, which is a plot of empty land about the size of a city block, which quickly became a row of Airstream trailers for people to live in for $950 a month. Did you ever go there? Did you ever see I this? I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so how, what was, I mean, was it kind of Burning Man-ish? Well, I've never been to Burning Man. I know all about it. Oh, okay. But I, well, yeah. uh, it's just sand and people all drugs and really cool costumes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, lots of heat. Yeah. Yeah. It was very hot. I mean, that's, it's always warm in Vegas, but yeah, it was cute. I mean, it was very well arranged, but when you get there, you walk into this vestibule of a CMU. There are like CMU walls on the sidewalk that like line the, the perimeter of the What property. are CMU walls? Oh, sorry. Um, Engineer. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Okay. So like the walls that you typically see in the desert that they're like the um, the brick walls, the concrete oh, okay. masonry. Network. Okay. Yeah. They um, separate, they delineate properties usually, like even between okay. houses. So um, there are these drab walls and a door to like a little, I don't want to even call it a lobby. It was like a vestibule concrete okay. like just whatever and there was a dude sitting there just chilling on his phone it, nothing professional he's just sitting there i'm like uh i'm here to see tony <laughs> like where the <laughs> hell am i and it was so bizarre and so i can't even remember how i got in but i think he just let me in and it had like 
it had astroturf and grass and a pool and the it was airstreams and tiny homes mm-hmm. and then it had this um two-story which i think used to be a motel a uh, two-story structure at the back of the property but it was one big square kind of um behind the pool was a two-story structure and i'm like where do i go <laughs> so weird. so was there a I was direct- pool oh yeah oh, okay i didn't remember yep. that part okay Yep, people were swimming in it. Okay. Um, and then I, I was like, well, I guess I, I was by myself. Like, I don't know where I'm going. Where's Tony? So I, he texted me, just go to the community um, room and I'll be there later. So there was like this community room, like I guess would, would have been the lobby of the hotel that was converted into a, a shared kitchen um, and like a lounge. And these people I've never seen before in my life were there. They were nice. Um, they were cooking. I'm like, I, I don't understand. <laughs> so are they friends of Tony's? Do they just all cook together every day? Like, right. I guess they do. Like, I, I just, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um, they offered me food. They didn't ask who I was. Um, they just started talking like, didn't ask who I was, but very welcoming. I'm like, this is so bizarre. <laughs> kind of like um, a commune. It sounds like yes. something in the 60s where it's peace, love. Yes. Know, let's yep. get stoned and have sex. Kind yes. of thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> not judging. Not, not yes, just, not judging. Not used to it. <laughs> just so, jealous I wasn't invited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but I'm like, I don't know what to do here. So there was a llama, there was a dog. Um, they were like, oh, feed the llama. <laughs> the llama, <laughs> we have to talk about the llama for a second. So in another <laughs> interview, Tony chatted with the reporter and he said, I'm the world's greatest photographer and I'm the best improv suit maker. I read that. And this I was don't during, understand. I, well, because it was to your point, they had this communal thing and they just started making soup together every day. And so he... He was now under, the, now under the impression that he wasn't just a master businessman. He was like, oh, I'm a good chef. And he actually said this to the ABC News anchor. It said, inside Zappos CEO's wild, wonderful wife. That was the name of the piece. And Tony gave the reporter a tour, even inviting the camera crew into his little trailer. And in one shot, Tony fed Marley, the resident alpaca, yes. <laughs> a carrot <laughs> from his mouth. And Marley chomped. Tony's eyes crinkled with laughter, genuinely Glee spread across his face. That was the article <laughs> talking about, you know, the trailer project, the trailer park project. But yeah, it was, uh, that was again, you know, to what we've chatted about off camera. This was yet another example of Tony bringing community into his life. At some point, he's like, I want to be with like kind individuals. I want to share my money, my generosity, my heart with everyone. And this was, do you think, what year was this? You remember? Was it 2014, 2015? I think it was, um, I think my notes in 2014. I think it was for that interview. It might've been 15, but I was okay. there and I think 16. Okay. And so like, to me, this was where, and the book does a good job of this because they, they kind of walk you through his meteoric rise you know, through the world world of business and his kindness and all the good things he's doing. And this kind of starts to begin, this is the beginning of the end, right? Yeah. You're starting to look like, 
okay, so now he's experimenting with numerous drugs. And on the business front, the thing that I remember, and you probably do as well, is that he started talking about holacracy, which was an approach that failed miserably almost quickly. Yes. It was that there's no leadership, there's no hierarchy. Everyone just does their things and that's how it works. And part of, and again, you can correct me or correct uh, the research I've done, but the authors of this book specifically start to point to this as being where his typical business leadership acumen started to kind of fray. Where yes. it, it was this, he wanted to connect everyone at the same level he wanted to be connected with, not only in his Harvard dorm, but within the early pieces of Link, Link Exchange into what he was doing with the downtown project, the trailer park, everything he was doing. He then started to experiment with ketamine. Yeah. And they talk about that. It's called Special K. Also, there's it's a drug that researchers believed helps to treat depression, anxiety, and like anything, when people are experimenting, Tony did tons of homework on this, you know, because he was a voracious reader on anything. And he found specifically a little book, it's called The Little Book of Ketamine, among many other books and white papers that he accessed. But he thought this would be the drug of choice for him now. It was alcohol wasn't serving him anymore. Molly starts to ruin, it just starts to stop working after a certain amount of time. And it, it was one of those things where he actually referenced in the book a 2020 study by psychiatrists at the Carolina Institute, a medical research university in Sweden that showed results that over 70% of those treated with K had measurable mental health alleviation. And this is kind of where you and I were going back and forth on our notes, is that I, after doing the homework I did, was also the end of the belief that he was chasing mental health. He was trying to figure out his demons. And you're, you're basically think, I'll just let you say, it, but I don't think Tony was in search of his mental health. He said it was much deeper than that. You want to talk about that? Cause yes, that, that was, yeah. that was new to me. It's something that I feel very strongly about. And, um, you know, and maybe I'm wrong, but every time I talk to, every time I talk, talk to Angel or every time I spoke with uh, the media or any time that I even just read an article, it's the same message that they give. I mean, maybe not Angel and this book, but but it's just, I feel like it's the easy way out for the media to say he died, he was on drugs, he was an addict, he was unhappy, and that's why you do drugs, because you're not happy. I, I just don't think that's it at all. Um, I think that, you know, I kind of touched on this earlier. I think that Tony just wanted to live a live his life um to have his loved ones around him to give even strangers um gifts and make them successful um mm -hmm. he thrived on it and i think when but but his social anxiety never went away that's right. like part of it it was part of him and he's just always he was born an introvert so i think that was part of why he wanted um, to try ketamine. I think he wanted to come out of his shell. He wanted to get rid of the social anxiety. You know, he, he developed a knack for speaking, um, and it became more natural for him, but I still think at the end there, it was still a little hard. Um, I think he still got a little bit nervous. Um, I also think that's why he drank so much. Um, but I, I don't think he was necessarily self-medicating. I don't, I don't think he was trying to escape anything. 
um, the only thing he ever tried to escape was being out front and being a leader. But that comes with the social anxiety. So, you know, and that ties into him stepping down from the downtown project that ties into the delivering happiness bus tour. Things got hard. He didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to talk about it. That's exactly what he said to me. I don't want to talk about it. So I don't think he was unhappy per se. He just was constantly trying to find ways to alleviate the pressure of responsibility. Um, I'm not trying to say he wasn't a responsible person, but when you're a leader there, and I learned this very quickly when I ran for office that, you know, holy shit, I, and on a much smaller scale, I, I would say to myself, oh my God, now I think I understand how Tony might've felt because I'm trying to be myself. You know, I make my pink hair. I have, you know, all these things going on. I want to post on social media. I just want to be myself, but I would forget that, wait, I'm an elected official. Now there's certain things I'm responsible for. I have Mm -hmm. to be careful what I say. Um, I have to be professional and there's a time and a place. Um, and I think Tony didn't want to delineate between his professional world and his private world. He wanted it all to be the same and he didn't want to deal with the hard things, which I don't blame him, but at the time, like he put himself there. So at the same time, so I think at the end when it spiraled, like the holacracy was a huge red flag to me to say, Oh, he's trying to get rid of the responsibility. He wants to push. It's become too much for him. Um, he wants to push that responsibility off. Um, that's where it's really started. Um, I think it was always there, but I think that was like a huge first red flag. Um, and then it became, okay, I'm going to try ketamine. And then you see advertisements for psychedelic drugs that help with social anxiety and depression. So he tried that. Um, that was yeah. another thing he was doing. And microdosing and things like that. Right. Right. Yeah. And I don't know how the nitrous came in because that's just bad altogether. But um, I think he started to do so many drugs that his, he just became someone who he wasn't. The drugs altered him and it wasn't even him anymore. Um, no. But, but deep down, he, you know, he's intuitive. He can read people. I think he knew that he was being taken advantage of, but like you said earlier, the drugs open a window and I think they did open that window for him to really finally see like, wait a minute, I am being taken advantage of, but then he's always under the influence. So he's not thinking straight and it's just a disaster. Um, so it just snowballed so quickly and then COVID hit and he was forced to be isolated and it was just the perfect storm for a tragedy. Yeah. Speaking of snowball, right? This is kind of where it ends is that he then decided to build a utopia in Park City. Yes. Right. And that was, that's that, this is the end. This is the beginning of the end for Tony. Do you, did you ever visit him in Park City? No. Okay. Cause I don't know. I don't think any of his real friends were there. They, they weren't. They tried to have phone calls with him and they had to arrange it through an assistant yeah. Who stayed on the call. Right. I mean. Well, because he was pretty much out of his gourd at that point. And, and just for the listeners, he moved to Park City during COVID because he was lonely and 
his life. He was in trouble at this point. Yeah. With his, well, with and his I addictions. Think, I think Jeff Bezos recommended to Tony, and I may be wrong. This is what I was told that he recommended to Tony, hey, you should get out of Vegas during the pandemic. Um, go to Park City. It's a great place to be. And you could build something there. And I think it was recommended to him. And that's kind of how he it was brought to his attention. And that's okay. kind of... That's good. Yeah. I didn't see that in the book. But then he did get to Park City and he bought another beautiful home. And a, a couple homes. But the one he stayed yeah. in eventually had bodyguards and people out front that wouldn't allow people in. And it had all the sycophants surrounding him. And he yeah. would stay up in his room by himself with, and he had what, thousands of post-it notes on his walls because he was yeah. ideating on different things. And there was a guy named Tyler Williams, who we actually featured in our documentary, who got a job at Zappos by sending in a video. And he it's came incredible. up with, yeah, he came up with the 10, you know, so he put the 10 tenets of happiness, delivering happiness into a song and they hired him as a customer service person. And he eventually rose through the ranks and I have it in here somewhere. But yeah, he became somewhat of a legend in that he rose all the way through the ranks to being one of Tony's top executives. And he was eventually given the, the title of fun guy and they gave him a $20 million budget to run his brand. And so not only did Tyler work his butt off, get from you know, the call center all the way up through the ranks of the leadership, to me, and I, I would love to get your take on this as well, is that Tyler Williams seemed to be one of the few people that pushed back on him and lo loved him. And, and it's, Tyler and his wife both loved him. And it was one of those things where the Park City demise was where he was in these, this big mansion with all these newly minted sycophants who were taking advantage of him. And he came up with a whole bunch of bizarre business rewards, right? The 10%. Club, yeah. which, so any deal you bring him, you get 10% of. So if you bring him a million dollar deal, yeah. he'll give you a hundred thousand dollars for the finder's fee. And so every, yeah, I mean, because this is where you can start to see, you know, just the complete collapse of him mentally where he wasn't yeah. thinking clearly anymore. And then there was just numerous people rushing to that so they could, you know, personally gain from his, his sadness and his addiction. And I think that was where, when you look at what was going on, he locked himself in there. He was, he hadn't, he didn't bathe much anymore. He looked, you know, it was very Howard Hughes kind of thing where he was just a recluse and he had all these, you know, yes men surrounding him. And then they had, you know, wellness visits that his friends like you were calling on and saying, hey, go check on Tony. I'm not sure if he's okay. And Tyler actually made a list because he was talking to Tony one day and said, I'm scared. For you, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But I'm scared. I'm worried about you, buddy. And he's like, Well, why? And he said, Well, you're just, you've done a lot of things to me that, and said a lot of things lately, even in writing to people that are concerning. And he said, Well, put them down for me. So he did. He said, Well, here's some of the things that you've said, Tony. You said you could run three hour marathons without training. You said you could grow your height so that you could be seven feet tall that you could download skills like in the matrix and become a martial artist. You offered someone $1 million to wake you up the other day. You don't have to pee anymore because your body now recycles your own urine. 
that you could solve COVID, that you could solve world peace. And the list went on and on and they got worse. And so it was, Tyler said, hey, dude, <laughs> I love you, but I'm concerned. And Tony's reply in the book said, Tony, you're starting to drain my energy. Or excuse me, Tyler, you're starting to drain my energy. You're constantly coming at me. And then said, if you don't question me again, I'll give you half of my network. Yeah. So, and he said that a lot to people. I'll give you this much money if you just leave me alone. Or I'll, and the sad part is that there were so many of these people that just clung to him like a barnacle. They, oh. they wanted money and they didn't care that this young man was spiraling out of control. And it was just, it was really sad. And then Tony, or excuse me, Tyler then sent Tony a group text. I'm not sure if you're on this or not, but it says, Tony, no, I was. we are all your friends and love you. But the last couple of days you've attacked each and every one of us for no reason. Elisa and I, his wife, have been paid to be here to connect and spend time with you. We love you. No matter how much you push us away or attack us, we love you. No matter what you say, we love you. Wish you were here to spend an amazing week with us. This was a wedding that Tony decided not to go to at the last minute. And that was the last time Tyler ever communicated with Tony. Because then it just got worse. It just yep. got worse. And they did somehow, and I think this is where we can get into his, his brother moved back into his orbit. And uh, was it Richard? Andy. Andy, sorry. And Andy and a couple other people did convince him to go to, to rehab yep. in Park City, right? So he right. got to rehab for, I think it was 20 days or 30. I can't remember what it was in hindsight, but it was, um, no, it lasted two weeks. It was 14 days of the 28-day program and he, and he left and he just walked out. He just walked yeah. out of the program and said, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. And uh, yeah, as we know, um, and that's what I was asking you about in, the, in our notes together is that, you know, you know his family, you talk with his father, you talk with Anthony and his other brother, what was his other brother's name? Dave? David. Dave, yep. David. What, what, were, what were his brothers thinking at this time? At this, you know, they kind of had to know something was really, really not good. It's hard for me to say. I mean, I... I, um, I really had no idea how bad it was until, because we had lost touch. I moved back to the East coast. Um, I had stayed in touch with a lot of people, but you know, I, Tony was doing so much that I didn't know. Um, and so, you know, when I found out he passed kind of backtracked, like, okay, what was going on? You know, I, yeah. I spoke, I speak a lot to his father, Richard. That's where you got the name. Richard oh, from. sorry. Yeah. I got that. That's up. okay. <clears throat> That's okay. So, um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know how they were feeling at the time. Uh, um, it couldn't have been easy. Um, I know Dave is a very, he's even quieter than Tony. I mean, I didn't know I said. Tony had a second brother until a couple years into our friendship. Um, and Andy, Andy was a very, is a very like outspoken, personable, friendly, uh, bubbly guy, like really great, friendly. Um, easy to get along with at the time. I have no idea what he was feeling. Um, okay. but I know that he became a target because you know, he was after Tony passed, he and his father were on the estate. Um, so, I mean, he had a bodyguard walking around. It was kind of scary for him. Um, yeah. Well, he was accused of know. being a grifter too. Correct. Yeah. A million yeah. dollar salary that he took to help run. I didn't projects. know that until now. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. those were the things that people were like, oh, and 
Dave, his younger brother, was laid off, you know, in an earlier yeah. piece too, which was very incongruent. If you have one brother, you give a million dollar salary to, and the other one you lay off. It's a that well, that shows that shows where Tony kind of fell off. It does, right? It does, and I remember that specifically. I I was in Vegas, like I always was. Um, I was there. I can't remember why. If I was there, no, it wasn't for work. I was just there having fun, like I did other times. But um, I remember saying to Tony, "Hey, let's go meet your brothers," because they were going out, and they were telling me. And Tony just shook his head. And I'm like, why don't you want to meet your brothers? <laughs> and he said, well, we just had a round of layoffs and um, I had to lay off my brother. And I'm like, and I had talked to, I can't remember. And the book had said that David had talked to me about it, but I don't remember if it was actually David or if it was Andy, but I learned that he was laid off and and that Tony hadn't talked to him about it. So I said yeah. to Tony, I'm like, you've got to talk to your brother. He's like, no, he didn't want to, didn't yeah. want to deal with it. No, yeah. it was 2009. Yeah. He was just like, no, no. And he was always that way. Like, again, avoiding the confrontation. confrontation. Yeah. Yeah. No difficult discussion. Um, and back to your money point real quick. I just don't want to forget to say this, that, um, you know, he was throwing money at problems, you know, with Tyler, I'll give you half my net worth. Um, I feel like at, in 2010, during the launch of his book, that was like when the dragons, the monster started to rear its head. Mm -hmm. And so everything that happened then to me and what I witnessed or whatever was almost like a microcosm of what it became. Okay. And, um, so at the time I was towards the end of the tour, I'm like, I was broke. I, you know, Tony just wasn't paying me enough. I was and not sleeping. I was getting for a while. I got like 500 emails a day. Um, <laughs> and I was just burnt out. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And so I flipped out. I was like, you know what? I don't know how I can finish this tour. I can't even pay my bills. <laughs> well, he was paying like, you $3,000 a month, correctly. Yeah. Just not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, no. And that's kind of the incongruency again on just what's going on there. You, you as one of his best friends who he trusted implicitly and because you loved him, you removed yourself from the nonsense. Yeah. That was the, that was the person he paid $36,000 a year. Yes. And he gives, you know, Mimi fan and a bunch of other folks at the end, just ridiculous contracts, millions, millions and millions of millions. dollars, which they all took advantage of. And they had to pay it back to some degree, which was good. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and again, I didn't, well, I don't want to poison this with all the negative cause I'm just trying to keep no. it positive for Tony, but for anyone who wants to dig into this, this book, wonder boy is fantastic. And there's tons of research out there about this was almost like uh, we watched the Titanic, my children and I, I have 11 year old, nine year old little boys and, and they were interested in the Titanic. Um, and we watched the show and we watched the unraveling of people after they hit the iceberg. And it was the first class people asking, <laughs> are we loading up the boats based on class? You know, and my, my sons were like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, these are rich people that think they deserve to live more so yeah. than, the, than, than the lower class people. And they're like, wow, that's really wrong, daddy. And I'm like, it really is. And it, what <laughs> happens is people take advantage of each other during, you know, times of toil and, and strife yeah. and crisis. And I said, and this is, this is what it reminded me of. If you look at 
just the the people that surrounded Tony in the last year of his life, specifically in Park City, were not there for any other reason than to to enrich themselves. Absolutely. To take take advantage of him. And so that's something anyone who's listening should just read the book for and understand or just look it up online. It was not good. And that's where, you know, this, his demise ended up, he had a fight. And you correct me on this too. He went to his friend's house in in the East Coast and he was out of his mind and he wanted to leave. He was he was doing a lot of whippets, as you talked about. Yeah. We haven't talked about that. But the whippets are these little nitrous oxide canisters that you use for like, you know, whipped cream. Whipped cream. But yeah. if you put them, and I've done this. We did this in college. So I know what it's like. You take it and you take a hit and it, and your ears ring and you, you get loopy and weird and laugh. Uh, but I can't imagine the amount he was doing because they said he was doing hundreds of these a day. 50 a day. 50 a day. Okay. Which, and then there were maybe you know, a hundred a day sometimes. Yeah. And then like strewn throughout the place where he actually died was where they kicked him out of the house. And then he went into this shack on the side of the house in Connecticut where he said, I'll yep. stay here and I'll leave in the morning. And then at the time he had these, he had this fascination with candles. So he lit yep. a bunch of candles and he laid down and then he was doing whippets. And who else, you know, who knows what he was on because I didn't look at the coroner's report or for any toxic uh, evaluation, but it it was, this was his last night. You know, he was in this room by himself because he was, he no longer trusted anyone. He said that to Tyler, everyone wants something from me. I can't handle it anymore. I'm sick of being taken advantage of. And I think that's what you really nailed this for me as one of his closest friends is that I think that the people taking advantage of it bothered him so much. It was probably even worse than the social anxiety he had. Yes. And how he dealt with that was distraction and drug abuse. And so yeah. it's it's at the end, the last day where, and no one knows what happened, whether a candle got tipped over, but a fire started, he locked the door, he locked himself in, they couldn't get in. They finally, kicked, they finally kicked the door in. I don't know if it was paramedics or the, fire department themselves, but they rushed him to the hospital. And strangely, he wasn't burned, right? No. There was no actual physical uh, manifestation of fire or, or heat, but much like anything to do with uh, that a level of smoke, he had smoke inhalation that, that took his right. life. It's, it's just, his lungs couldn't recover and his, and he died and he passed away. And then everyone was, you know, wringing their hands with surprise. Yeah. You know, and and anyone anyone who knew it was going on there was just, you know, it's tragic. And so I I again I'm sorry for your loss because I know how much you loved him. And you do speak with his dad now. You don't have to speak to this, but how how is his family doing? Do you know? They they seem to me to handle things so well. Um I mean, I don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but they're just such wonderful people. Um, they just want to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as far as like the money goes and who's who and what's what. And um, I think they're getting to the bottom of it with all of these lawsuits. Um, it's just so unfortunate. And the, there are more lawsuits that just came that just surfaced. I'm just like, why can't people give it a rest? Like. I, you know, when I, when I was complaining to Tony on the bus tour saying like, I don't know how I can finish this tour. I'm not happy. 
you know, I'm not happy. Um, I don't know what to do. He threw money at it and he gave me a little bit more per month. It's like, instead of 3000, it was 4,000, but, but that was his way yeah. like of thinking like, okay, but, but anyway, um, as far as the money goes, like, you know, I, I never got more than that. I went broke helping my friend. And these people that are suing the family and the estate for more money, like how much more do you want? Like you clearly didn't do this for the right reasons or whatever they're doing now, like helping Tony or however they help Tony. Clearly they didn't do it for the right reasons. So why, why would you put the family through that? Um, you, they know, they know how Tony is and was, Mm -hmm. they know that it was, you know, writing the, the contracts on sticky notes. You can't, I mean, it is binding, I guess, but. (laughs) Well, to some degree, because there's an adult, there's an adult brain thing happening too, as far as was he in the the proper condition to actually execute. He was not. No, he wasn't. And, and that, you know, this goes back that the reason and this is just my purview of it. These are the people of the Titanic that are jumping on the lifeboats, right? Yes. W- without caring about the children that they're taking the spots of. It's yes. just, it's the human condition at its worst. It's the id of America is what's being represented by the people that are suing Tony Shea's estate, right? These are yes. not people that were doing it because they love Tony or that they were doing anything to help Tony. They were trying to enrich themselves. And they're still doing it posthumously, which is nauseating. (laughs) Yes. 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 And Mimi was the first one. Within two weeks of Tony's passing, she filed a lawsuit. That lawsuit went from, I think, nine million all the way up to 130 million that she was suing the estate for projected revenue of that 10% deal. Projected revenue, what she should, she thinks she's owed, which the money doesn't exist. It's projected revenue. You can't sue for something that doesn't exist. Right. So luckily. Well, did they actually take that? They did. They oh, shot they, her down in court, didn't they? Oh, she had to pay close to a million. Yeah. Yeah. So not only did she not get any additional funds, the court was like, no, yeah. yes, ma'am, you're, you're going to pay us. And she did. Yeah. Court yeah, she go, did. Right. It was, it was about $800,000 that she yeah, paid. I think that's what she I didn't get a dime. Um, if they would have gone to trial, she probably would be in big trouble. Um, I think she probably knew that and why she paid it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Let's settle. Get it done. Yep. She was giving him drugs. A lot of people started to come out of the woodwork, myself included. Um, I said, I'm done being silent about this. I witnessed her writing checks, thousands of dollars of checks to herself back when the monster just started to rear its head. That was nothing compared to what she ended up doing in the end. So Thank God that that's done. I feel horrible for the family. Um, Jen Lim is suing the family now. I mm, just, it's too bad. I hate it. <laughs> no, I do too. And, and you know, again, I, I just want to thank you for this because I reached out out of a, and as I shared with you earlier, I, I, I do a report on politics, but this story was so interesting to me just because of my very short period with Tony and the film that we, you know, embedded him in, and we've used him as an example of how to treat people, how to run a business, how to be thoughtful and entrepreneurial and kind. 
And I think that that's what I want to leave our listeners with. And I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show and sharing your spirit and your experience with someone that I looked up to as a businessman. And I didn't know him well enough to to love him as a friend, but he seemed like a really great human being. And it's really sad for everyone that he's no longer here. So thanks for coming thank, to the show, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. And and just a quick note, um, you know, I know you do typically cover politics, but this really does tie into politics, in my opinion. Um, when I ran for office in 2016, I took a lot of my learning from the the tragedy, not the tragedy, and I hadn't passed yet, but like the hardships that I had on the tour, and I applied them to being in office. Like you, you have to be careful. You have to be self aware. Um, you have to know who you're surrounding yourself with, mm-hmm. and you have to speak up when something's wrong. Yeah, that's the biggest. Yeah. No, and I'm glad you came forward for with both the authors and the other folks. I know Nellie Bowles reached out to you as well, uh, but you weren't <laughs> ready to talk with her. And uh, as much as I respect her as a reporter, I would love to see that piece. <laughs> but uh, again, thank you, Holly. And uh, I wish you nothing but success going forward. Thanks again. Thank you, Joey. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.